tuning into Power Athlete Radio. Before I get into this week's episode, I have to address something. You may have noticed that we don't really advertise on our podcast. It's something we've discussed a lot and we've dabbled in over the years, but it's really because of two simple things. One, we want you to enjoy the experience of the show and not feel like you're being force-fed some trendy bullshit uh, in exchange for listening. And two, although we've been approached a lot about advertising, we just haven't been able to stand behind any of the products to pour ourselves out. Well, that all changed when we met the folks from Stay Classy Meats. They were a huge part of the 2017 Power Athlete Symposium, where they provided snacks for the attendees and a ridiculous feast worthy of your meat diary for all of the VIPs at John's house. I cannot even tell you how phenomenal their product is, which is unfortunate because this is radio after all. I've had virtually every product that they offer from the jerky to the pemmican paleo bites and various sausages and meats. And you can trust me when I tell you that the food is legit. The farmers are salt of the damn earth, who I also had the pleasure of meeting, and they're supporters of Wade's Army. As if you needed more of a reason to order a big old box of meat, you have it here. Stay Classy is also generously extending a discount code for all you listeners. You can use the code POWERATHLETE, all one word and all caps, to get 10% off your first order and an additional 4% off any subscriptions that you get at checkout. Head to stayclassymeats.com immediately. Don't touch that dial. Not a pertinent phrase for podcasts, but moving on. Okay, we have Dr. Lori Santos on the show to talk about behavioral similarities and differences that exist between humans and other primates. This is important stuff because we are learning a ton about how we collaborate socially, how we make irrational economical decisions, and Lori's fascination, how we over-imitate each other. Holy shit, we are blindly doing what other people are doing, which is fine if we are imitating intelligence or, say, good movement patterns, but is tragic if you think about all of the suboptimal behaviors we are mimicking. Attention alpha males, you may want to stay tuned to learn why a little turf war is not worth losing all your hair for two enlarged testicles. That will make sense shortly. This is episode 263. What is up? Oh, good one. Ooh. That was John Wellborn, everybody. <laughs> uh, star guest of episode 260. If you uh, haven't listened to it, you must go back and listen to episode 260. Uh, of I just so popular. What's so amazing, it's so popular that you guys asked me to be a special guest. But John, Again. what I think this t- tells us is you're a better guest than a co-host. So it's nice seeing you. Uh, this is Remember uh, where we relieved you of coaching at Balboa? Ah, uh, so, so I don't have to come anymore? So this will be yes. your last podcast. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding, good with that. I'm kidding. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm actually okay with that. I mean, I'm going to start my own podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, that's right. John's not lying. <laughs> he is starting his own podcast. It's called Talk Again to Me, Johnny. <laughs> Talk to nauseam, Johnny. But listen, people, before we get going on today's show, we have really it's symposium season. That's what it is. Power athletes. You say a bag and son of a bitch. That's it. You old, <laughs> you old sailor. I uh, knew you. Uh, yes. Three day speaker. We're event not out that here. Young out here and just a couple of kids having a good time. Uh, where are we in Austin, Austin Texas. Texas? Three day speaker event. It is a, a extravaganza extravaganza. It is the premier 
strength and conditioning, conditioning extravaganza symposium in Austin, Texas on December 7th, 8th and 9th, it's December 7th, 8th and 9th people tickets on sale. And now. the best part of this whole thing is our live auction for Wade's army. So it's a silent auction, not AKA so, not, not so, so silent, silent auction. auction. So if you don't know what that is, we're gonna have a whole bunch of sweet swag there from our sponsors, TBD. Um, th- listen, people, here's what happened last year. Uh, we'll call him JC was really interested in the, the title, sp- the title auction item, which was what? what's in John's pockets. So <laughs> the guys, uh, this has been kind of a joke for a number of years. It actually goes back to the gym. Uh, I really don't always have a great idea of what's in my pocket. So I just kind of stuff things in there. And in years past, they've been like, Hey, what's in your pocket? I'm like, I don't know. And I'll pull out the back of crumpled one and maybe like $10,000. Yeah. Or there could be nothing and a lick and like, uh, yeah, nothing but lint and knives. Yeah. You know? So, <laughs> so yeah, I, I totally subscribe to general Mattis's deal that you should always carry a knife because you never know if there's going to be cheesecake or you have to stab somebody in the face. So I, you know, always carry some form of pocket knife. Um, and it, it just turned into a deal where I remember Nate Austin was, uh, we were squatting uh, mm-hmm. heavy that day. Mm-hmm. And I told Nate, I'm like, I will give you whatever's in my pocket. If you can get that weight. Yeah. It's 200 and, kilos. And he ended up getting stapled. Yep. And I think it was like two or $3,000 in it my was pocket. It was oh like, yeah. I, rec- I, reno- yeah. I recall I, like 1700 bucks. Yeah. Like, so yeah, I didn't even know it was in. I just pulled it which out and you- I had cash and I was like, how much is there? And I kind of threw it at him. I was like, no, give me that back. And which to the clinic at that time, time might've like been 20 bucks a week was a good wage for this yeah. guy. So, so like- <laughs> yeah, he would have like, he, we would have never seen him again. So last year, Luke's like, Hey, we're going to do it or text. I mean, the, the crew one was of like, us, yeah. one of us was like, Hey, why don't we do what's in John Wellborn's pocket as an auction item? So well, we had so much success with the mystery box. Yes. Yes. That it could be added. anything. <laughs> so, so we, it was kind of last minute. So I went around and I started collecting things from people. Rudy Reyes tried to bequeath me his prayer beads that he got from like, you know, uh, his shaman yeah, from the shaman Lima. who got it from like uh, the Dalai Lama, which I was like, I can't take it from the Lama, <laughs> no, Lama big, big hitter, the Lama. So uh, this year we're going to put a little planning into it. And uh, well, hang on, hang on. It could be nothing. It could be something. That's the just like the story John told. It could be lint in a pocket knife or it could be. Something some valuable. Some valuable. Right? So, ladies and gentlemen, that is one of the premier parts of the premier extravaganza and strength and conditioning is the silent auction on day one. But here's the thing, right? All ticket sales, all proceeds are going to Wade's Army. If you haven't heard, Wade's Army is our 501c3 charity that is, is set on this earth to raise awareness and battle the pediatric cancer known as neuroblastoma. Right. So this is from when did we start? 2012, 2011. This would be well, our sixth year. Passed away in 2012. Yeah. Okay. So 2013. No, no, he passed away in 2011. And the yeah, first, and then the first year was, was in 2012. 2012. Yeah. So it was actually coming up on the one year when Kate was like, hey, can we do something? And that was in 2012. But uh, it, it, Wade DeBruin is, is the hero of that army. And we have plenty of others, families that we're sponsoring. Anything that we collect goes direct to families. You know, we are the, the charity. It's not like you're donating to some huge conglomerate where you don't know no, if you're it's fucking literally us donating to, uh, you know, golden toilet seats or whatever. Anyways, listen, people enough about this. If you are interested in the power athlete symposium, December 7th, 8th and 9th, head to powerathletehq.com slash symposium and get your shit together. But enough about us. Let's get on to our guest. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Lori Santos, who is an expert in human cognition, right? And I think she's about to solve one of the, premier debates that we've had in power athlete is that going to happen 
I'm pretty excited that we that we're having you on for the mere fact that I'm going to get you to settle an argument that Texan no. and I have, or <laughs> like add fuel to the fire, which is what I'm hoping. <laughs> so this all started because uh, I don't necessarily believe in any of the creation myths and a lot of like what Christians and Catholics and different people were have taught us about like how the world started, and so that's where it all started. So. I'm not a believer in that myth. And so it kind of came into this uh, evolution versus intelligent design. Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Text beliefs that some master person up, like actually created all of these things. The watchmaker. Yes, the watchmaker uh, Mm -hmm. from like uh, the Matrix, right? And so we've been discussing, you know, especially your stuff, you know, like observing chimps and other non-humans for, you know, behavioral type stuff. And I'm like, would that mean text that they were related enough or maybe it evolved into that they were similar enough? No, they're different. <laughs> we're, we're not, you're, I'm not going to see your, uh, your side. You're so not going to see my side. I'm, uh, I went to Berkeley and um, actually two of my professors were from Yale. I was a rhetoric major and they were actually rhetoric, uh, had that at Yale and then they came and they were PhDs, uh, professors of mine. And I remember mm-hmm. when the Andy and Artie thing came out, I was at Berkeley and they published all that. And this is like, I went there 94 through 99. Or 98, and then uh, grad school in 99. And then, um, so I, I like when all of that information came out 10 years later, I was pretty fascinated by it where they found the common ancestor, or so they, or so they think. Text doesn't mm-hmm. buy it. So that's our argument. <laughs> well, I think there's, you know, we could, we could do a whole, a whole segment on evolution and evidence for it and all that stuff. But I think, I think I'm going to have to beg to disagree with text too. We'll see. I'm, I'm happy uh, to try to provide evidence to, well, to help. To help convince, but sometimes these are tricky, tricky arguments to have. The only thing which is confusing for me, and uh, uh, like I, I have a blog that's called Talk to Me, Johnny, and people submit questions. And this guy actually submitted me a question, being like, "Hey, can you kind of outline, you know, what you think? Because I believe the world was created in six days." And it kind of sent me off this whole deal where I was like, okay, like, let's look at sharks. And the only one that kind of caught me a little funky was uh, the first octopus showed up about 240 million years ago in fossils. Mm -hmm. And they can't figure out where the octopus evolved from. And it hasn't evolved. It hasn't changed in about 240 million. And it's like it can fit into any space. It's got camouflage. I mean, it was so perfect 240 million years ago. And is by far, I think it's got 33,000 proteins for its for the genome where I think mm-hmm. what humans are what 23,000. So it's more advanced than us. Yeah. No, octo- so. octopus evolution is incredibly fascinating. There's evidence. There's a really great book on this. Um, Ooh, by this guy, Peter, Peter Godfrey Smith, um, who does stuff on the mind of the octopus, but it looks like uh, oct- octopus seem to have the best or evidence. Octopi. 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 There's a big fight about whether they're octopodi, I think is the technical. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually just looked this so, up. The other day. So octopodi. this is a joke because I was talking about octopus and Luke's like octopi. I'm like, shut up. Yep. Uh, octopodi, I think, is the correct term. Ooh, she's um, even better but nobody uses that. But um I do but know. It, it looks like they may have evolved consciousness like three separate times in their evolutionary history. Like if you look at their brain structure, they've gone through these incredible changes across different species. And so the claim is as as humans and primates, we might have gotten consciousness once if that but it looks like they might have evolved it separately three different times so so there is there is a nice evolutionary history that you can trace in the living octopus and cephalopod species um but it's incredibly complex and it looks really different from primate evolution and other mammal evolution um they're incredibly smart even though they their their smartness looks really different from ours even how they and this is maybe something relevant for you guys thinking about athletics 
is that the way they control all their different forearms seems to be interesting, where there's evidence that the different arms seem to have different levels of consciousness. So sometimes one arm will be doing something and the other arm will like grab it and make it do something else, um, which I think is really interesting. We think about exercise and physiology and willing your body to do certain things. But They also have a, uh, um, they do not know how they communicate. So like, there's no, like, uh, they think that it's like a form of telepathy is another piece I read. Like they're able to like, and they've somehow put it within, uh, uh, I can't remember how they studied it, but it was like within like water, they were able to see something or there was like some energy field that was able to transfer back and forth that that's how they communicate, which I thought mm-hmm. was like, so they were like, they, they necessarily couldn't put their finger on how they communicated, which I thought was pretty yeah. epic. I think with with most things in science, whenever an animal does something that we don't understand yet, we're like, whoa, it's telepathy or it's magic till we figure it out. And they're like, oh, okay, cool. Um, One of my uh, former mentors back at, I did undergrad at Harvard was this um, guy, Donald Griffin and Griffin and he was, and he was the, and he was the one. So they're shooting off like information that they can detect back. And he did that because he was a scientist who was studying radar and trying to figure out radar technology. I was like, wait a minute, like there's an animal that does this. Like, and he, yeah. And so, um, and so we thought like magical, like how do they, how do they see, how do they know things? What is it like to be a bat? And it's like, Oh, that's how they're doing it. It As soon as our science catches up with what the animals are already doing, then we're like, Oh, well, the, uh, not to get into the evolution creationism debate, but I think that's one thing we realize, which is we like to think that we're the most evolved species when it comes to everything. Oh yeah, but we then are. You get other animals, <laughs> and we're like, well, wait but, a minute, other animals are doing like super like yeah. Weren't the bats doing like triangling, uh, like triangling yeah, uh, deal? Triangulating. What? Yeah, the triangulating deal, um, which we haven't done. I think was in like the last twenty or thirty years. We figured out how to do it, how they could do like GPS deal and like. Yeah, I mean, they've had the technology for, you know, able to bounce it off of, like, uh, uh, stable structures. I mean, and then, like, I mean, it's pretty, pretty, yeah. So. Yeah, it's incredible tech. But, um, yeah, so so when when we compare, like, what makes us special, it's often on the things that we're awesome at. But anything that we're not awesome at, we don't look to other species because you're like, about oh. uh, Like, I was reading on the, like, what kind of just where I just stopped was on the octopod. Uh, when they were, uh, this one professor was like, we don't really know how they came here. We're thinking that they were like eggs from space. At that point I was like, okay, so if we can't describe something anymore, it's like, uh, it has to be aliens or it has to come from space. And I'm like, uh, magic or the, like, and then Texas like, oh, intelligent design. And I'm like, uh, all right. So hang on. Yeah. Let's press pause. Yeah. And and first off, do you, do you prefer Dr. Santos, Lori? Either way, I mean, Lori's fine for okay. this, so it's great. Uh, yeah. how, how did you get here? Not not on this show, but like, tell us, because <laughs> that was a, that, that was a stroke of luck. You fell for it. Um, no, what, <laughs> tell us we about tell us about your background. It sounds like a fascinating like niche to crawl yourself into, and and I'm just I'm sure our listeners want to hear a little bit about it as well. Yeah. Um, so I, I kind of started college having no idea what I wanted to do, but was always interested in people and kind of how people think. I was kind of a natural human observer. And then when I was in college, I took my first class on psychology and I was like, oh man, this is really cool. Like I want to study this sort of thing for a long time. Um, and it was there that I met 
the person who would later become my PhD advisor who studied monkeys. It was really like my sophomore year, there was this cool class on thinking about how animals think. Um, in addition to being a cool class, it also had this field component where over Thanksgiving break, you got to travel to this cool island in Puerto Rico where there was a thousand free-ranging monkeys. And my professor was kind of like, we need research assistance. And I was definitely signing up for that. And so I started doing that my sophomore year and went to this island and got to observe monkeys. And it's fascinating because they are, I mean, Texas is right in the sense that they're so much like us, other animals, but they're also so different, right? They navigate all these problems without language, without any of the tech that we have. And it's just kind of fascinating to ask this question, what makes us special? I think where we differ is like where the answer comes from, but like there's, there's no question that we're super different from other species. And so that kind of got me going my sophomore year of college. And I've sort of, it sounds cheesy, but I've sort of been doing it ever since, um, just kind of at, trying to figure out this, the answer to this question of what makes us so different, what makes us special. And where, so where, as we figure out some of these answers, where does, where do we find that at play in our everyday lives, whether it's technology or industry or whatever? Opposable thumbs? Well, I guess, yeah, obviously. That's why cats can't flush toilets. (laughs) Actually, they can. What? Oh yeah. I got a buddy who trained his cat to use the toilet, but I digress. (laughs) You have a friend with a cat? Yeah. I'm not a cat person. Well, you love Callie. Uh, yeah, but I don't like Callie's cat. And that's one thing about her I don't like. I don't think Callie likes her cat. Either. Yeah, I think Callie just has a cat because it upsets us. So Callie is our podcast producer who really, uh, she just gets to listen to this and take whatever beating we throw at her. Yeah, so. it's pretty good. We kind of, you know, <laughs> slip jabs on her and then she goes back and listens and she either cuts it out or she doesn't. So we, we really <laughs> never know how it's going to go with her. Awesome. Well, the, the strange thing about humans is that physically, we're not that different from other animals. Like, yes, we have opposable thumbs and that makes us a little bit different. We're bipedal. Um, We also have this wonderful thing where we have a larynx, which is part of our vocal structure that's lower that lets us speak in all these, using all these different sounds that makes our language so rich. But, But probably it's not the physical stuff, it's the mental stuff that makes us different. And that's where it's really tricky because it's easy to observe animals' physical stuff. We can just look and ask, do they have an opposable thumb? No, like cat, no opposable thumb, great but it's much harder to ask what a cat thinks, right? Like, can a cat take your perspective, right? Does a cat know what it means when you're saying something? Like, does a cat understand how to make decisions? Like, those are really tricky things for scientists to study. And so we, we have to get creative with how we ask animals. And that's one of the reasons that this puzzle of what makes us special has been a puzzle for so long is it's really hard to ask animals what they think. So then what... What breakthroughs have you hit that have just kept you going on this? Like, is there a a very particular animal you enjoy trying to jump into the psyche of? Uh, Well, there are lots of animals that are cool. Many of the animals we test are just out of convenience. Um, So we've done a lot of work on canine cognition with dogs. And that's mostly because there are dogs all around. Like people here in New Haven at Yale have lots of dogs and they'll bring them in to do studies. And so it's really easy to test them. So that's been kind of one direction is just really practical study the animals that are around that you can get access to. Um, But another tack we've taken is if you buy evolution, then there's some species that are most likely to be as close to us as possible. And that's other non-human primates, right? Our closest living relatives. And so we've jumped in and studied those guys because if anybody's going to be similar to us on the big animal tree, it's probably going to be them. And so we study a group of monkeys that live off on this island in Puerto Rico. There's a thousand monkeys there. So it's a big sample. They kind of free range around and do their monkey things. We can study them in a relatively naturalistic habitat. And one of the things we've been focused on with the monkeys is this question of perspective taking. So one crazy thing that we do as humans all the time is we think about 
what's going on inside somebody else's head that isn't ours, which, which we do all the time. So we forget how crazy it is, but it means we're able to simulate a completely different reality than our own reality in somebody else's head. And there's just been this longstanding question of whether or not any other critter uh, can do that. And it seems like this might be one of the spots that makes us special um, because it seems like other monkeys can simulate like uh, if we're if we're looking at something that's the same perspective, they can realize that you have that perspective too. But what they can't do is think about something different. So they know, like, say we're looking at the same thing, we're all talking together here, and, and you can see what's going on in the back of my chair and me and stuff. But you don't know what's going on in the rest of the room. I could have something really exciting happening, and I, as a human, could realize, well, you know, you see me, and so we share that perspective. But you don't know what's happening in the rest of the room. Um, it seems like monkeys can't do that. They they would know that, like, oh, we share this perspective here, but they wouldn't be able to think about the stuff that you can't know that's going on. Um, and that's kind of cool. It's, it means that we we know what it means to share information, right? The reason you you all have this podcast is like you want to tell people stuff. You know, your listeners haven't talked to me yet. You know, your listeners don't know about stuff. You have this motivation to share it, and that seems to be something other species just can't do. At least monkeys can't do. So I, I had read a study from 2007 in the Institute of Evolution Anthropology in Germany. And mm-hmm. what they did is, I guess, take an orangutan, take a monkey, and take a two-and-a-half-year-old child and kind of measure their different, uh, I guess, physical learning. And they really found that the two-and-a-half-year-old exceeds kind of, I guess, expectations and then that they were greater social learners than the two than the two monkeys. So, I mean, that's that's over a decade old. I'm curious if if you've heard of this study and then dive deeper into these aspects. Yeah, so so really what that study showed, it was a really cool study and one that was pretty famous because what it did was it looked at different primates, kind of ones that are differentially related to us, different great ape species and human kids. And it measured not just how the adults did things, but it measured over time, how do they learn? Because one possibility is like, as adults, we look different from other primates, right? Like adult chimpanzees are not doing the kind of stuff that we're doing all the time. And so is it just that the adult state is different or is it that they learn really differently? And so that was what the paper was trying to look at. And what it finds is that for physical stuff, it looks like other species learn at about the same rates as humans. So if you plot like how good they get at understanding physical things like how to use tools or how to solve like different physical problems, it seems like the species are, are pretty on par. But if you look at social learning, understanding the social world, that's where the species seem to differ. And so that paper was really important because it started pointing to the fact that it looks like it's in the social domain that we're different. Like physically, we kind of understand the same stuff, but socially we do stuff different. And that raises new puzzles because if you look at, I mean, if you're just looking and observing other primates and you say, what makes them special? You might at first think it was the physical stuff, right? Like I'm looking at you all and you have microphones and laptops and hats and cell phones and all this physical technology stuff that we just don't see in other species. But it turns out that the way we got that might be through social means to some interesting extent. It's not like our understanding of the physics that was different. It's our understanding of how to share information with others, how to build on the information that other people had, all these kind of interestingly social things. And so, so yeah, I think that was a really, it was a cool paper and an important one in the field because it suggested, hey, look, even though our tool use looks totally different, that understanding doesn't come from our knowledge of physics. It really comes from our knowledge of each other and how we build on that. Yeah, but there's got to be people out there that are probably as inept socially as an ape. I'm not looking whoa, at anybody. Whoa. I'm just yeah. saying. Well, hey, uh, I, I was going to say this. Um, are we talking so, about text? Hang on. No, no. I mean, it, it kind of. <laughs> I'm kidding, uh, buddy. 
I have twin girls. Uh, I have a little boy who's two, and I have little girls that are six. And the one thing which was interesting to me is how much more evolved women are than men for the mere fact that, like, their social structures. Like, you can watch they kind of, like, uh, how they play, how they do this stuff. When you watch little boys, they're more kind of solo, like, uh, uh, individual play. And But little girls are extremely social very quickly. Like, they will, like, work on things. And if another girl comes in, and this probably happens later, they probably end up shunning her. But in this point, like, new girls come in, they invite them in the game. Like, the constructs of their games are so elaborate. Like, my daughters have all these, like, little figurine horses. I got them from Tractor Supply. They know all of the names. They all have a special purpose, like the level of stuff. My son goes over, he just knocks them down and grunts. Yeah. Bam, bam. bam. And, and yeah. And like, uh, I told my wife, I'm like, uh, women are so much more evolved f- for the fact that, you know, just within the social deal and men are pretty simple. And thank God, uh, <laughs> I would not want any part of that piece. And I just, it seems like, uh, you know, and I always go back like, uh, you know, I know this is kind of a funny analogy, but like Forrest Gump was happy. Because he was simple and just like, you know, like the Leo or like the simple yeah. is as simple does. Man, he just went with everything opposed from like overthinking everything. And I'm like, God, that's uh, that's probably what I strive for. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, like you think about I mean, that, that kind of hits home. Like uh, the more so the, the higher the social intelligence and the constructs of communication, the higher the intelligence. So that's kind of interesting spot. Yeah, because we kind of put it with like the tool piece, like at least I think about that, like the ability to construct and build and like the tools and all those pieces as kind of like the marker for intelligence. But probably it's maybe emotional intelligence or kind of social deals that that really kind of signify people. Mixture. So that puts text on an evolutionary scale with a chimp. Mm. Are there there any primates that are more uh, more similar to us than others? Like if you could look and say, like, here's a species that uh, exhibits uh, characteristics that are more human than some. Yeah, it depends on the specific characteristic you mean, right? I mean, uh, chimps are chimpanzees and bonobos are are two ape relatives that are most closely related to us, and they seem of all the different apes to be most similar to us in their intelligence and a little bit in their social structure. Um, one of the funny things that makes chimpanzees similar to us is that they uh, tend to be really violent. In fact, they have lots of male violence and male warfare. They're one of the only other species that engages in like warfare between groups, which is kind of a sad thing that makes us similar to them, but it's one of the things. And so probably just because they're most closely related to us, they end up being more similar. But again, it kind of depends on what characteristic you mean. You know, if you mean bipedal walking and using language, no apes are similar to us. But if you mean, you know, I don't know, these gender differences, for example, you can sometimes see those gender differences in a lot of different species where females play differently early on in life than males do and so on. So... So it kind of depends on the characteristic. But if you had to be a betting, if you were betting and you didn't know the characteristic, go with chimps because uh, they're our closest living relative. C-Tex. There's no intelligent design in that one. Mm. Or <laughs> that's all part of the plan. Or So part of your, <laughs> part of your <laughs> research. No, 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 hold on, no, hold on, hold on. Hold on. Let me finish. Uh, on the evolutionary scale, if we were to look at chimps, um, is there, and I'm sure you guys have, have talked about it, maybe you won't throw it out there, but is there ever a thought like if we could give chimps X amount of years, we could, you know, and evolution is such an interesting thing. You never know which way it's going to go, but I kind of sometimes think like, okay, if you look at, uh, you know, the Andy and Artie stuff, what was that? Three and a half million years ago. If you put mm-hmm. chimps in a situation for three and a half years or like 3.5 million years, is there a chance that, you know, they're moving in a certain direction? Does the, uh, I don't know, maybe historical record or fossils or something show an evolutionary path for them? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, uh, it's always hard to know, right? Because we have to have a time machine to go forward or back to kind of... We'll figure it. that out in the future. Uh, 
Yeah, yeah, that's that's bring a physicist on the show for that one, I think. But um, wh- one thing we know from chimpanzees and bonobos is that they've taken a really different path. So we're equally related to both of them, but they as two species, even though they're separated only by a couple million years, which is like nothing in evolutionary time, they're really, really different. And, and they seem to be different in ways that you might not predict. So bonobos over time have gotten smaller brains for their body size. And you might think like, that seems really dumb. Like, are they regressing? Like, is their brain getting smaller? But it seems like it has something to do with the their social relationships. They've also become kind of calmer and more tolerant and less aggressive. And so it might be something to do with that where their overall body size is kind of getting smaller over time. But, but the point of all of diet? this... Could, could it be a diet? It has to do with diet a little bit. Yeah. And so chimpanzees eat more meat um, and more stuff where they have to kind of compete for access to this stuff, whereas bonobos eat a lot of boring stuff. Um, and so that might be part of it. It also seems to have to do a little bit with their sexual relationships. So um, bonobos have a very free sex, kind of very hippie culture where they all interact. And that is related to what they eat because they eat really boring stuff. So there's no competition because they kind of just eat roots and grass and stuff. Um, and so that means they can like leisurely hang out and not fight with one another and sort of eat the food together and sort of have this very hippie lifestyle. Whereas chimps are much more type A, they have to fight and fight over resources and stuff. And that means they don't have as chill a kind of sexual relationship culture either. Huh. So it's all That's interrelated. So what you're saying is that if you continue to be a vegan, eventually your brain will shrink and then you'll get free sex. That. That's what that I picked up on like as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Luke and I sat down and watched your TED Talk, so I'm interested and I'd love to share the concept of monkey economics, and I know John will get a kick out of this one. Yeah, yeah. So um, one of the things that you might think make us special is what we understand about money, right? We're the only species that uses a physical currency to trade with one another, and it raises this question like, what is it about humans that makes us special when it comes to money? But the flip side is also, you know, yes, we're this wonderful species that we use money, but we're also this species that does really dumb things with money, right? Look at the financial collapse, look at all of our bad savings records. Like we're not as rational with money um, as we look. And so we were really interested in whether or not we could study the origins of this stuff. Like could, if you gave monkeys money, could they use something like money? Um, Would they be rational with it or would they be irrational in some of the same spots that humans were irrational? Um, And so I teamed up with some colleagues, this economist, Keith Chen and a student of mine. um, And what we did was we gave monkeys their own currency, like these little metal washers. We went to Home Depot and got a bunch of washers that we use for the monkeys. um, And we taught them that they could trade those washers with humans for food. We did this in a in a lab setting where the monkeys could kind of interact with the humans. And the amazing thing is they picked this up really quickly. So they figured out like, oh, this, this token could be traded with a human for food. Um, and not just that, we gave them choices of different humans to trade for food. So they would come in for testing and get a little wallet of tokens and they could pick who to trade with. And the people sold different foods at different prices we could do different prices by just giving more or less food. So everything was always one token, but sometimes the monkeys got like a huge, really good piece of food for one token. And sometimes they got something tiny or that they didn't really like. And what we find is that the monkeys not only pick up on this little monkey market, but they're rational in all the same spots that humans are rational. So they pay attention to things like price and how risky something is, and they kind of maximize their monkey dollar and they respond to sales and so on. And so that was really cool because it suggests that the species has no experience with money, um, is rational in all the ways that humans are rational. But the other cool thing is that we also 
tested them in all these domains where people act really irrational. Um, so one spot is how we deal with losses. We really want to avoid losses. And that sometimes makes us do riskier things than we would otherwise do. So to avoid losses, we'll take these really risky bets um, and that, that end up messing us up over time. But we're so averse to losses, we do that. And what we found is that if you put monkeys in exactly the same situation, what you find is monkeys show the same irrational biases as humans do. So they're smart with money in the same way humans are smart with money, but they're also irrational with money in the same way that humans are irrational with money, even though they have no experience um, with any of that stuff. Wasn't there a deal with they were um, trading the uh, the money for sex? Was that the monkeys? Was uh, so, uh, Yeah, like I, I, I remember reading this whole thing and I can't even remember what it was, but it was talking about animals using currency because I think penguins have like a, a, a rock that they give to like, you know, they're, they're monogamous, but they give like the, uh, the rock is like a, you know, kind of like a wedding ring to like their, their mate and they keep these rocks. So and I just remember reading about that one, but I think there was something where the monkeys started trading for sex. Yeah, the amazing thing is it wasn't the monkeys, it was the journalists. So somehow in the first write-up of this stuff, it got the journalists claimed that we saw the first evidence of monkey prostitution, um, <laughs> which, is, which is funny because, and, and the way they thought the prostitution went sort of shows our bias, which they said, oh, the male, the alpha male paid tokens to the females to have sex with them, which, which actually never happened. And it's funny, you know, the species of monkeys because... Um, the way the sexual relationships work in this one species, capuchins, is that all the females really want to have sex with the alpha male, but he's kind of like got a lot on his hands because there's a lot of females, so he's kind of tired. So in this species, it would never be that the alpha male had to pay a female. He's like kind of exhausted, like, okay, fine. Like, you know, so so it sort of showed the journalists' biases of how <laughs> prostitution would go in humans, but um, it didn't really fit. Or maybe they were just but trying no. to sell more articles, so they figured to put something a little more sensational on there. Clickbait. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't want to go there, but you know, I, I assume like, oh, maybe they misheard a, something, but um, no, but they no, totally but changed that. They, they totally changed it. Um, yeah. But uh, but the, the interesting thing is the monkeys never figure out how to trade tokens with one another, which is kind of cool. They really flexibly do it with humans. If any of you walked into the monkey enclosure and you had some food, they would know to trade with you, but they never get to trade with each other. And I think that's because the monkeys have their own kind of system for who gets goods and services. They have this really strict dominance hierarchy where there is the alpha male and he gets all the sex and, and then there's the beta male and it goes down. And they kind of, they don't need like, it's kind of like if you're alpha male, you could just take everybody's money. Like you don't need to trade with anybody. You just like get access to all the resources. So it suggests about that, that piece, like I'm, I'm, I've always been interested, especially in like the monkey culture, is it all through violence? So like, is the alpha the biggest? Is he the, is there characteristics for him? Or is it just kind of the monkey that kicks the most ass gets to be the alpha? It, it depends on the species and this species it's partly size and partly kicking butt, but, but it's also personality. Um, so when we, when we started our, our monkey colony, they kind of live like a big zoo enclosure. So there was like 10 monkeys all together. Um, we got, uh, the monkeys, uh, from a group at Yerkes primate center where they were in a much bigger enclosure and we got a subset of those monkeys. And when it first started, there was one guy who was the alpha male, just as it started, he was just the biggest guy. And we told the folks back at Yerkes like, Oh, you know, guy A is the, is the new alpha a male and they're like huh that's weird like i bet give give guy b some time and i'm like really like guy b is super small like whatever but then over the course of weeks guy b kind of was like being nice to all the females and making friends with everybody and then all of a sudden there was like a big fight and then guy b took over and that was it and so it's sometimes who's the biggest and the strongest but in most primates it's often who's really politically connected um 
and in different species, you see these like Shakespearean political plots playing out where it's different guys fight with each other and they make different alliances and they kind of override guys. Um, at the field site, this monkey island in Puerto Rico, um, one of the longstanding alpha males got ousted. And then there was a big fight for who the different which, which male would take over, right? Because there was not an obvious successor. And the males had to fight so much that their bodies seemed to put a lot of energy into testosterone production. And one guy, his testicles got so big that he lost all his hair. Um, so his hair fell out, but, but he ended up becoming the alpha, but he was like completely bald because <laughs> his body was just like, all I need to do is fight now. So anyway, the, the upshot is it's a combination of all this stuff, but it's super interesting. And you know, you're laughing because then you apply it to humans and you're like, what's... Right. You know, all those bald guys at the gym, you know. Well, I was going to say, we usually, you know, throw stones and make fun of the bald guys. So it's like, right. you know, yeah. they, I mean, oh, obviously, balls. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of a weird one, but, uh, like in, so like the, uh, with the alphas in terms of the monkeys, would you say it's a more complex structure than some of the others that you've observed? Like, uh, like with dogs or whether it be, you know, uh, uh, like big, uh, big cats or anything that you guys have also uh, have observed? Yeah, I think, I think that's right. I think both monkeys are different than those other species, but also different monkey species are different. And it kind of depends on an individual species, how much it's politics, how much it's just being big and strong. Um, and then that raises interesting questions about humans, right? Like what's, what's our social system, right? Do, do we really have these hierarchies? Are we really egalitarian? Like what is it based on? Um, I think there's some f fun philosophizing we could do about that in humans. Uh, I always like the, uh, like the silverbacks, like the big, um, um, like the big apes, uh, mm -hmm. like just seeing like those things. If you guys have ever watched any of those, uh, like where they fight for the alphas, just watching like the big, uh, the big gorillas, uh, dude, like the amount of distance that they can cover as fast and the force at which they hit, you watch these things pound each other and you're like, I think I'm gonna throw up, dude. I would shatter me into a million pieces. And it just purely goes back to like aggression and size and how fast and like, you know, and they just basically crush each other. And like, that's, yeah. yeah. So I, I just wonder if like the smaller monkeys too, uh, are more, maybe like more intelligent than maybe some mm. of the bigger monkeys. Yeah, I think, well, in, in monkeys, it kind of varies a lot, but there are definitely some species where males kind of pick their own strategy, either be big or be small and crafty. Um, you see this in some, in these funny fish species where, um, the, they're like an alpha male who has to defend a whole harem of females. Um, there's this one called the chiclet fish and the males defend the harem of females in this really funny way where they, they grab females and stick them inside shells to like protect them. So like the females are like in the shells and then the male can just defend this big pile of shells. And so no other males can mate with the females, but that's what you do if you're like a big burly aggressive male. But there's another strategy if you're just a smart tiny male, which is you focus on being really smart and crafty and those smart tiny males figure out that they can hide in the shells ahead of time. And so when the big alpha male sticks the female in the shell, there's like the little guy in the shell who's like, hello. And he just mates with the female in there. And so, um, so that's pretty crafty. There's another um, species of, of lizard that the males have three different strategies. So one is to like be this huge big alpha male where you get a harem of females. Um, but he can be defeated by a kind of medium-sized male who just defends one female really well. Like he's kind of monogamous. Who's like, I'm just going to protect my female and do all these things for her. And then she'll stay with me. Um, so like that one female will not go with the big harem guy or whatever, but, but the, the monogamous guy can be, um, 
can be defeated by this guy who has the strategy of sneaking up and just kind of jumping in. And so it's, it's almost like a game of rock, paper, scissors, um, where like there's the big harem guy who defeats some, but then there's like the sneaker guy who's like really tiny and just sneaks in. And then there's the monogamous guy. And, um, and what you see in the population is which of those morphs wins out depends on how many of the other morphs there are. So if everybody's being alpha male, you should switch gears and try a new strategy. And you can see across years that the number of them changes, which is cool. Are these choices for the animals or is it just genetics played out and they... Yeah, it's a super great question. My guess is for them, it's mostly the genetics playing out. Um, but how the genet the genetics has to know somehow, right? Like, do they pers- you know do they count the number of other guys? Do the genes just kind of know. Um, and this is an amazing thing when you study animals. Is animals do these things that look really complicated, but sometimes they do it in ways that are really really simple. Um, one of my favorite examples is uh, ants have to have a concept of death in their colonies, right? So if, if an ant dies and is like festering and gross there, it's really bad for the rest of the colony, right? It's just, it's like any communal living situation. You don't want a bunch of gross corpses dying. And so they have to know when another ant is dead and like know to throw them out of the colony. And it's like, do they, you know, like measuring the pulse? Like what are they, are they doing the same things we do? We don't know. It turns out that if you study it, there's just this simple chemical called oleic acid that ants emit when they die. And so if you're an ant and you smell oleic acid, anything with oleic acid on it, you like throw it out. And so scientists do these studies where they put oleic acid on live ants and the, the other ants will like take them and throw them out in the like dead ant heap. And the ants like, it's like that I'm not dead yet you know, kind of thing. Um, but the, but the point is that it, it's incredibly complex behavior. You know, we have philosophers who debate, you know, what does it mean to be brain dead and all these hard questions, but animals are solving that same problem, but they do it in a really super simple way. And so some of your, your research is targeting to explain our, as humans, sometimes illogical behaviors. So mm-hmm. what are some of the behaviors that we haven't highlighted yet on the show? Yeah, so one of the illogical behaviors that we've been really interested in is this phenomenon called over-imitation. And it basically just means that we copy whatever everybody else is doing without thinking about it. We kind of imitate too much. Um, and so the, the original version of the study went something like this. Imagine I show you this puzzle box it's opaque. You don't know how it works. And I show you how to open it. Right? I stick a stick in the top of the puzzle box and I open a front door. I ask you to do it yourself. Um, what you find is you copy me and you don't know how the puzzle box works. So that makes total sense. But you can also do a version of the study where it's really obvious how the puzzle box works. Imagine I show you a clear plastic box and it just has a little door on it. And that's like, it's obvious that the way to open it would be just to be open the door. But you also see me do some elaborate moves on it. Like I, you know, mess around with the top and I wave a wand over it and I do all the stuff before I open the door. What you find is that people will copy all those behaviors just to be on the safe side, right? Like if I did it, maybe that's the right way to do it. Um, but it's kind of irrational because it means you're willing to override all your knowledge of physics of how this puzzle box works to just copy me and believe me and trust me and trust my information. Um, it turns out, really young children will do this too. Um, and they do it, they do it a lot, but this is something that other animals don't do. So if you do the same problem with chimpanzees, they'll pay attention to you and pay attention to what you're doing if they can't figure out how to do the box themselves. But as soon as they have some information about how it would open that they could figure out on their own, they just ignore your information and just go for it on their own. Um, and this is, and this this is another thing we've done with dogs as well. So we thought dogs might fall prey to this because they're so prone to pay attention to what we're doing, but even dogs will ignore what we're doing if if they don't need it. Um, this seems to be something that's special to humans. And so it's universal to like, uh, was there, you know, across the board, everybody did this. 
or were there certain yeah. or were there certain personality traits where in people they looked and thought that doesn't make any sense so i'm going to do it this way yeah, it's a great question. So they've now done this study. W one thing people thought was that maybe this is a, a cultural thing, right? You know, Americans, like we sort of force kids to do stuff. And so they went and tested kids um, in hunter-gatherer populations where there's like very little technology, the, no schools, that kind of thing. And they find that kids show it just as much there as they do in America, which is cool. In fact, the one kind of population that doesn't seem to show this as much are people who um, have autism or on the autistic spectrum. It seems like they, they don't fall for it. And that might be because they're just less prone to pay attention to social information. Generally, they kind of don't show it. So, so it seems like it's, it's a, it's a universal for humans that are what we call neurotypical who don't have something like autism or so on. Um, but it seems like it might be special to us, but it's, it's a thing that's special to us. That's kind of dumb, right? It's like other animals don't show it, but that means they're kind of more rational. Um, the cool thing though, is it probably is a, is an easy mechanism for us to learn from one another. Like if we never question what anybody else is doing, then it means we copy really easily. And, and that's, that's good in a culture where people are doing really smart things. You kind of get what everybody else knows for free. You sort of stand on the shoulder of giants for free. It's just bad when people are doing dumb things. It means we don't have a filter or even though we think we do. Right. And I guess that gets into understanding uh, your, your responsibility as a coach, let's say to pull it into our spectrum is but like, I mean, I, I, like, and I can think this from like a personal point of view. I mean, how many times have we seen people do things over and over again? Uh, and just being like, dude, I'm not going to make these, uh, these same mistakes, which I was, before we got on my dad, my entire life told me, um, I can't, I forget. It was kind of a derogatory way he said it, but, uh, if you got to learn from every person or if you can't learn from everybody else's mistakes, you're going to live a hard life. So like mm -hmm. if you watch, you know, somebody walk into the door and you watch all these mistakes and you have to go make every mistake, mm -hmm. it's going to be a rocky road and you're going to have a painful life. So like be smart, watch what other people do. Don't make the same mistakes and don't be a dipshit, I think is how well, it all went. But even that is a form of what we're talking about here. It's just that we have we have the wherewithal to determine the outcome was negative. OK, so well, I'm watching. But we also assume most people are, are idiots. I mean, like, that's just kind of like what I assume. Like, if, no, if I, 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 I know they're idiots. Yeah. Well, I mean, but <laughs> no, but kidding. but I mean, part, you know, like, uh, I don't know if you know much about power athlete other than the fact that we got this, you know, really funny podcast, but premier podcast and strength and conditioning. <laughs> ing, ing. Uh, we're a strength and conditioning company, but really what we're looking at is developing uh, technology for human performance. Like, uh, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm obsessed with this idea that there's a, a way for people to move. Uh, and if we can understand that level of movement through a definition of athleticism and can put people within this training model, I can make them better versions and be able to move better and just be better athletes, which, you know, mm -hmm. manifests in every way we need it to. So like, I'm not necessarily trying to train you for a sport. I'm just trying to maximize who you are as an individual, uh, you know, within the confines of what you can and can't do by assessing and looking and being able to put this model together and then putting you into it, challenging you, you know, through a million different ways and then pushing you out there with the proving ground being some form of sport or some form of competition and mm -hmm. the, where this came from um really just you know for myself playing in the nfl for 10 years um just seeing the way that people were doing things and thinking there has to be a better way more efficient way like i just if if i watch you on you know and this this happened we had to watch film on a on a you know hey my coach like hey i would like you to, to do it like this guy i'm like but he's like six eight 350 pound black dude you got any like six mm -hmm. or five 300 pound white dudes that look more similar to me than I saw what they could do and then realizing that my skill set is here and I had to be able to do it within the confines of myself and my own skill set, not just trying to mimic other people. And I think for a lot of this stuff, uh, the people who 
who, and we get into this talk about innovation, uh, the people that are able to innovate are able to look and see where people are stumbling or making issues and then be able to make corrections so I don't have to make those same mistakes. Yeah. And I guess to kind of bridge a gap between athletics, I've been watching the NBA playoffs and then listen to an interview of Kobe Bryant. So we have who's better, LeBron James or Michael Jordan, two of the greatest all time. And Kobe Bryant's take was essentially, I watched the greats growing up. I did my damnedest to, to mimic and be like them, but in it found his own creativity and his own style. So he was not going to take a side between who's, who's better or worse, right? So it was just essentially allow them to be their own, own selves, right? So it wasn't, I'm not going to ignore this person and become my own thing. That's like, don't you think like it's human nature? Don't, don't you think it's human nature to always compare? I mean, like that's what she was talking about, like being able to to live in the mind of somebody else, which is you know unique to humans. But a big part of that is like constant measuring, like, and maybe that goes back to something the, the within alphas. the well, maybe it goes back to within yeah, the primate that's deal. Definitely something that monkeys have the social comparison stuff. There, you know, you can. There's a wonderful study with monkeys where you're um, having monkeys trade for cucumbers, which is like a fine food, but not that delicious for monkeys, right? Um, and they're fine with cucumbers if the guy who's next to them trading is getting cucumbers too. But as soon as you start to give them cucumbers and the guy next to them is getting grapes, which is like much more delicious for a monkey, all of a sudden they, they not only stop trading, but they'll reject the cucumber. They just won't eat it anymore. And it seems like, you know, this is a, it's kind of compelling because it's a food that a hungry monkey would otherwise want to eat. But as soon as somebody else is getting something better, then they don't want it anymore. So the social On the monkey scale, is, what's the best food? Uh, in our hands, um, the monkey, so in our trading studies, we get to ask this, right? Cause we'd ask what would the monkeys pay the most money for? Um, and the thing the monkeys liked the most, um, was a fruit roll up filled with marshmallow fluff. We uh, called it the fluff. I was going to say deep dish pizza. Uh, That's what I would go. They for. haven't tried that. They haven't oh. tried that. One, one thing that is interesting is that, um, there seem like there's some cultural effects on monkeys. So, you know, we did all our economic studies and the monkeys bought things like marshmallow fluff, fruit roll ups and, mm-hmm. you know, fruit loops and all this terrible processed American food. And they, they did similar studies in, in Italy, um, where there's another big group of primate researchers. And if you look at the, those monkeys preferred food is with things like black olives and like pine nut. And I was like, Oh no, oh, my cultured. poor organized monkeys. <laughs> like, so- uh, I, I had a buddy or I, I worked with a guy, not a friend, but uh, I worked with a guy who, who had done some research with primates and, um, they had a deal where I think it was like on Thanksgiving, they fed them like some form of meat for Thanksgiving. And the interesting part was that the, uh, as the date for like the following year was coming up, the monkeys knew that like, uh, they were going to get meat on this certain day and it was like a big deal for them. And they just, and I, I think because it wasn't all that typical in their uh, in their normal diet, but it was like a real big deal to actually get some form of like some form of meat. So I wonder where that fits on the whole deal. Yeah, you and different primates are different. So and it's kind of surprising. You might not think from what the primate looks like what its diet is. So those silverback gorillas, those really crazy aggressive guys that you see fighting like crazy, like they're total vegans. Like they just eat grass. Super boring. Um, whereas you get these really small primates like eye eyes and these really tiny guys who eat bugs and eat protein, you know, their diets basically all protein. So, um, so it's sometimes, you know, from our, our own idea of like how much protein and you see these pictures in the workout magazines of like protein, protein, protein doesn't always map on, um, to the other species. I mean, we as humans need protein and that's what builds our muscle, but it's, it's not true for everybody. Depends on the gut. Hey, so I know it's not your, uh, your favorite cup of tea cause you're primate focused, but let's talk about dogs for a second. Mm-hmm. As a dog owner, and John, you're a dog owner as well, yeah. and probably plenty of normal dog owners out there, not weird cat people, unless you're a cat person, which 
Brian, you're a weird cat person. But it, what we experience with the dog, a domesticated dog, it, the affection that we perceive, is it truly affection? Is that dog sharing affection? Have, or is it just yeah. the comfort and safety of, like, the protector of the pack? Yeah. Um, it's a great question. It's one that's, like, pretty hard to know, again, because we have to mm. have a way to ask the dog, like, are you here for affection or are you just scared that you won't get food today, right? right. We have to have some way the dog can tell us. But um, there are hints that the dogs are experiencing something more like affection. And it comes from some studies looking at dogs' ancestors, wolves, and how they interact with us. So there are people who raise wolves by hand. Um, and they've looked at kind of how people and wolves interact. They've done it not just by looking at behavior, but looking at the hormone system. And hormones are cool because we can we know how hormones work in the context of other like caregiving interactions. So when a mom interacts with a baby for the first time, moms emit a certain kind of hormonal cocktail. And one of the important things in the cocktail is this hormone known as oxytocin, which is talked about as like the love hormone. It's, it's, it's not exactly that. In fact, it's much more complicated than that, but it does seem to be involved in bonding. Isn't it turns it out also that like you, a, um, uh, like a, what do you call it? Um, like a, a mild painkiller too. I think it's, uh, that's like, right. Yeah. yeah. So it it's, it's almost like it feels good. Right. Um, yeah. it's also the thing that's released in orgasm. Right. So it's like, it's a feel good kind of hormone, but it's also seems to be involved in bonding, which helps with orgasm too, for the most part. Um, but in the context of interacting with your dog, what, what, and what you find is when a mom looks into a baby's eyes, there's this big release of oxytocin. So researchers were interested, is that what happens like when we look at dogs and when they look at us, you know, are we releasing oxytocin? So it turns out that if you're really bonded to a wolf and you've raised a wolf, when you look at them, you kind of get, you as a person get the oxytocin, but the wolf doesn't really get anything back. You know, they're mm. looking at you, but they're not Savages. feeling it. Uh, but when you do the same thing with dogs, it's a reciprocal relationship. So in other words, you feel it with the dog and you release these hormones and kind of gaze into the dog's eye, but the dog is sort of doing that same thing back. And so it seems like the, the, the argument from this paper is that dogs have kind of stolen the loop that we have for caretaking our own kids, right? They've kind of slotted in even in the same hormonal cocktail and they kind of interact with us in the same way by like looking into our eyes and kind of, so even though it's hard to ask them what they feel like biologically, it's working a lot like our interactions with our kids. So, hmm. How, so um, there's, there's hope that they really love us, I guess. Is the uh, best you know, you, you hit something great and I've always been, um, this is actually just a, a pure question for my own knowledge. Like I've always been interested with wolves and how they, uh, you know, I guess you could say evolved into, you know, man's best friend. I mean, if you take like pure two purebred wolves, how do you end up getting a domesticated dog? And the other thing, which is interesting is, uh, look at all the different species of dogs but yet with wolves wolves are pretty much wolves i mean so i i've I've always thought like uh, you know they were oh closest created john oh the watchmaker (sighs) let the experts the intelligent people talk he's not talking to us well here's here's a spot here's a spot where we have so to really test with there there are hypotheses about what happened from wolves to dogs and the hypothesis is that it probably happened the domestication happened in sort of two waves sort of wave number one was dogs coming close to our camps, which is probably useful for them. They got scraps of food. It was useful for humans because they might, you know, they might bark and warn us of bad stuff, but it kind of was just wave one was just, they got comfortable around us. Like they're not scared. Like a wolf would be, they come close to you. The second wave was probably us shaping dogs. And that's how we got so many different breeds of dogs is that we picked some for protection and we turned them into Dobermans. We picked some to be scent hounds and help us find stuff. And they became bloodhounds. We picked some just to be 
you know, cat-like and cute and cuddly, and they turned into, you know, Yorkie poos and these kinds of things. So, so the hypothesis was it was two waves. But, but there's actually one study that tried to look at this that asked the question, how quickly could we take some random wild animal and domesticate it? And this was a study that was done with wild foxes in Russia. This guy, Bayelev, in the 1950s was like, I'm going to see how quickly I could domesticate a fox. And the cool thing was the only thing he did was he took a big pen of wild foxes and he just decided whoever comes closest to me for each generation, I'm going to mate those guys together and they're going to be the domesticated ones. He didn't pick on anything else. It was just like who got closer, right? And over generations, just with that criteria, all these crazy things happen. First, those quote unquote domesticated foxes developed floppy ears so like their ears like are floppy like dogs. They developed what's called piebald coats, which is just they have like little white splotches in their coats, like lots of dogs and cows and goats and horses and other domesticated animals. They also got smaller brains to body size, which is another thing like they're less aggressive and they're kind of getting more tame. Um, and none of those changes were things that Bailev was trying to find in the foxes. He just picked like, who's going to get close to me? Because that's probably what happened with the wolves. But all these other changes, you see, it's really wonderful YouTube videos of if you Google domesticated foxes, because they look, when, when people walk up to them, they like wag their tail and come up and they have these floppy ears and they're incredibly cute and they look like dogs. Um, and so that was a nice example that, you know, kind of get back to the, you know, they got created or not. This was a case where we know the history and two things. One is we can shape animals that look a lot like domesticated animals, but also all this stuff came along for free, like floppy ears and stuff that you didn't have to create specially. It just is part of the genetic code that kind of comes along for free in ways we're only now understanding better, but you kind of get all this extra stuff for free. Well, that, I mean, that same thing happens to pigs. I mean, when uh, you take a wild boar, you know, hairy, black, the whole deal, the snout, and then you domesticate them. I mean, they turn into like these pink pigs that snout changes. And then like, like they've done studies where they've taken domesticated pigs, put them out. They've become, you know, wild boars kind of deal and put them back in domestication. And they end up changing back into the, what we see with pink pigs, which is the one that completely blew my mind. And it doesn't just happen like over years. I mean, it happens relatively quickly. So yeah, and this is character. another thing we've seen in, in canids too, in, um, in wild dingoes, another species that we've started doing some work with because they were probably on the path to being domesticated dogs. In fact, they can interbreed with dogs. So they probably were dogs species. But then when we brought them over to Australia, then they kind of went wild and went off on their own. And now they behave completely differently from domesticated dogs and show a lot more of the wild type patterns. Um, and so you can see there's like real flexibility in, in what the genetics allow you to do. You stick somebody in a different environment and you have selective pressures over time and animals can wind up really different. Do you think that happens for humans? Well, there's an interesting question about what's happening in human evolution if you think about it, because um, we do all these things as humans to prevent natural selection from taking its course. So what happens when an organism is, has some bad trait and is not fit for their environment? They don't mate or they die, right? In humans, we all have all these things that like fix us, right? You know, I, I'm wearing contact lenses. I'm like super blind without my contact lenses. If I, this was back in the natural selection day, you know, I'd just get eaten by some like tiger or something. I wouldn't be around, Or you would have right? just had to but hang now, in the hut all day. Yes, exactly. Like, please bring me some food. I'm blind, right? Um, But, you know, that means if I have kids, I pass my not so great genes on to the next generation. And so the key with humans, if we ask about our evolutionary history, is we've in a lot of ways stopped the selection pressures that would be improving us and improving our fit to the environment. Um, And that's kind of interesting question of like, are we making our species like worse over time, which is an interesting one. Um, Another thing that's tough for humans is that most species have environments that change relatively slowly. 
But humans, because of cultural change, our environment has been changing so fast, it's super hard for us to keep up with it, right? Like we have, you know, we, we change over like thousands and thousands of years, but even just like in the last 10 years, now we have iPhones, like now we swipe like this, like now we have devices that cause our vision to look in really tiny locations, right? That have never happened over evolutionary history. Um, now we have like vaccines and, you know, protein powder and all these things that have just never existed over human history. And I think we just don't know our, our biology is not catching up to our culture. And that means that we're not as fit to our environment as we could be. If we had like the world of iPhones and protein powder for millions of years, eventually our biology would catch up to it. But now we're just this old primate that's plopped into this totally new environment and our biology doesn't fit as well um, with the kinds of things we face. So in a funny way, we might be less fit than other organisms for our own environment right now, just because our environment changed so fast. And then are are there any other species you know, when we, when you look at fitness, not necessarily performance-based training, but fitness and staying in shape, Mm -hmm. really what you're replicating is like manual labor in this weird fucking silo of weird equipment that is easy to work hard with. Right. Mm -hmm. So we train to replicate the demands of this, like where we don't have any technology to enable us to do things conveniently. Do any other species take this approach? Like as things get easy, they replicate hamster on a wheel. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Well, that's in captivity, of- you see it a lot, right? I mean, when you take an animal out of its environment and you plop it somewhere else, it, it, I mean, that's the hamster on a wheel in captivity. Um, I would say that the closest thing is that all species have a training environment when they're young for the stuff they're going to face as adults. So lots of different species play. Um, the monkeys we study in Puerto Rico do this play fighting where the males will like fake fight. Um, and so, and, and there's evidence suggesting that the more they play, the better they are later on. Um, animals also do this play sex when they're little kids where they play mount. And there are these funny studies where if you don't let them do that, then when they finally try to actually play mount, they kind of don't do it right. <laughs> they kind of don't know what they're doing. And so, so that's a kind of, I guess, one version of it. It's not like their environment's wrong, so they have to kind of train in this funny way, but it's like you're training for the stuff that you're going to use later on. But it's, it's in the form of what we observe to be play. Yeah, right? but, I mean, but, but think about this. I mean, the, the one thing which is, is really just eye-opening to me about having kids is uh, how elaborate their games are. Like, um, mm-hmm. I don't think that we even have this level of creativity. Like I could ever come up with this stuff mm-hmm. and I'm always fascinated. I'd always sit down and be like, can you explain to me the game or can you explain to me what's happening? And, uh, everybody's on the same page, but me. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> explain this to me. And it, it's pretty, like, it, it literally blows my mind to the point where, uh, you know, I'll go get them new horses. I'll be like, can we get another horse at tractor supply? I'm like, only if the game gets more complex. Mm-hmm. So I figure like I get them one and then they can go select. And the interesting thing is when we go to tractor supply, they know exactly what they have and don't have and they might have like 25 horses or so I got two girls like 50 horses and they'll be like oh we already have this one so then they got an elephant which they didn't have before and they got a chicken and they started getting other animals to create this like it's crazy like upstairs on this like cabinet they have this whole like a uh, farm and then I, I made them uh like little places for them to live they got like they stole egg crates like uh, empty egg cartons and the animals live in the egg i'm like i'm like this is fucking <laughs> beyond anything i i could ever imagine and if if i sat with you two morons and said hey mm-hmm. let's come up with a game with all these things we'd just be like there's no way you know i'm so sure I, we'd call I it just, the arc but i just arm wrestling <laughs> <laughs> okay this is my other oh, one with it. you text do you remember uh, whenever we talk about stuff, I'm like, just two penguins came from Antarctica. Penguins had swim. to walk and swim to get on the ark. Are you telling me that two penguins came from Antarctica? They swam. 
And, and first off, we different arguments for Old Testament versus New Testament. John, I don't think we have time for it. Uh, I do. <laughs> let's. We just opened it up. Let's go. But, no, but, no, 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 no. Let's get in this. So, 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 so the question being, we've we've observed this in primates and other species that as you, as they're young, they create these you know games that allow them like the play fighting so that they prepare later in life. I mean, we've probably observed that too for children, like the like the level of creativity and kind of developing that part of their brain allows them to go on later in life. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that the fact that they're playing and doing these kinds of things and that they're motivated to do these kinds of things. And that's the most fascinating thing I think with kids. It's not just the creativity. It's like they want to keep doing this. You know, if you get them to stop, like they're going to find ways to do this, even in these even awful well, what, conditions what, what makes me nervous too and i, I why i kind of like foster this stuff is i'm so nervous with like video games where now yeah, all well, of a I'm sudden somebody else is creating their reality and now i'm just a player within their reality where i tried to explain yeah. it to them because they asked me they were like oh our friends were talking about these video game things and i was like you can't play them and they mm-hmm. were like why yeah. and i'm like because why do you want somebody else to dictate your creativity and your reality because they like to make pictures and the whole deal and i'm like can you imagine if i came and set up the game for you guys or set up this whole deal and then and you had to play within the confines of these rules. Would you like that? And they were like, no. And I'm like, good, create your own rules, create your own games. When the day you don't want to do anymore, then maybe you could find video games and they have no desire to play them because they don't like the idea of somebody else dictating their games, which I'm like, fucking great. Stay away from this stuff. Because dude, I mean, you think about the day that, and we were talking about this uh, Fortnite thing, which still blows my mind, but these, uh, you know, kids well, give, being, yeah, give some perspective on double A's post. So we have a, so, a yeah, buddy who's a strength co- or former, strength, form, former coach. strength coach. Who's got two boys that are, I think they're like eight and 10 years old. And, uh, he has this thing called the strength coach pen app or pens, pen and paper. Yeah. Pen, yeah. Pen and paper where he just writes out things and like people, you know, comment on it. And he wrote mm-hmm. out this schedule for his kids who wanted to play Fortnite. He's like, okay, you got to wake up. Uh, you got to eat breakfast. You got to go out and play. You got to do all this. And he kind of like wrote out this schedule and then uh, he deleted the post dude. Uh, Cause the people went crazy. And then he had from like okay. seven to nine that his kids could play this Fortnite if they had ticked all these other boxes, which, which like, was like, yeah, yeah. Like they had to do ch- take out the trash. They had to eat lunch. They had Chores. to like uh, play basketball for 30 minutes. Like they had all this stuff. And then if they did all these things, they could play Fortnite. So he posted it up and he ended up taking the post down because people were losing their minds saying these kids are going to commit suicide this is too rigid how this and he asked he sent it to me and i'm like i think it looks great i'm like i do way more than this in a single day and i don't get to play Fortnite. and (laughs) and the fact and the fact that people are so concerned that Fortnite and being able to play video games is some like uh right right, yeah some rite of passage i'm like i don't know about you guys but like you know like we played some video games but if like we were we were playing video games we were kids and like the the kids you know people banged on the window to go play basketball we were gonna go play basketball Mm -hmm. like i I don't ever remember a time when our buddies showed up and be like now we're gonna play video games they'd be like dude get out here we're gonna throw rocks at cars let's do it let's go break some stuff yeah and we would go outside and throw rocks at cars and get people to chase us now you get arrested for this so i'm wondering if there's like a um you know either a parents or like a desire to keep kids safe or like we don't know what's going to happen and they're going to get in mischief, so we'll just park them in front of this and let these alternate realities happen. Yeah, no, I think it's a great question. I mean, I think one thing is that it's, it's worth realizing that the evolutionary process doesn't just happen for chimpanzees and for bonobos and octopuses and octopodi. Um, it happens for cultural things, too. And I think one of the things that's happened in video games is that video games of today are just much more addictive and just much more powerful 
than the video games that we had back in our day. I'm actually happy that I grew up with like, you know, an Atari 2600. Yeah, King Mike Tyson punch out. Remember Brick yeah, Breaker but, and all but that? I mean, those are, those are good, right? But I think these are way more powerful. I mean, there are whole social worlds that have these different motivational structures. I mean, look at something that seems dumb like Farmville, right? Where it's like people get addicted to this and put off their own life to kind of participate in the video game world. And I think that's the power of the evolution of video games is that these video game developers, you know, you win at the video game of life and you sell more copies of Fortnite if your version of Fortnite is more addictive and more people play it and so on. And so I think we are creating these cultural institutions that are like super addictive. I mean, this happens in the context of video games. It happens in the context of processed food, right? You know, the folks at McDonald's, their goal is to make French fries that cause you so much craving. And then no matter if you're watching your weight or not, you're going to like want to go out and get these French fries. And I think this is the other kind of crazy thing about the evolutionary world that humans find themselves in is that we have these corporations who are trying to like get us addicted to stuff and get and mess with our biology to kind of get us stuck on things. And they evolve fast because culture evolves much faster than human biology. And um, I mean, I think the Fortnite example is powerful. They're beating us, right? They're causing these kids to go through all these hoops because like they're so addicted to the Fortnite. They'll do their chores and do all this stuff just to be able to get to play. Well, I mean, is it Um, something similar to like, um, you know, drugs, for example, I always think on this one, like, um, you know, like, uh, I remember, you know, my dad was a lawyer, uh, criminal defense for like 52 years. My brother, the brother's a lawyer. And he's like, you know, the one thing I've never had any of my clients ever told me being like heroin was the best thing I ever did in my life. He's like, I got a guy, you know, or like smoking meth or some of these things. He's like, I have these clients, man. And it's like, they all were like, where did it go wrong? And he's like, did you ever like when you first sparked it up, did you think like, Hey, this is a great thing. This is going to expand my life. And he's like, they're like, no, we were doing it to hide from things. And I always kind of go back to the idea of like, uh, you know, do people have enough consciousness to be able to make, and like we said, like people don't have the ability to make uh, changes independent of what other people are doing. They just see what other people are doing and they do it too. So does that go back to like, is that an evolutionary thing? Or do you think that like uh, certain people have a greater consciousness? Cause if you think about, uh, you know, these video game companies are pouring millions of dollars into intelligent people. And I know that they are not just putting video game programmers, but they're finding people like you who are in completely mm-hmm. different realms to figure out like, how do you manipulate and make this addictive in such a way through social constructs in here? And you bring in smart people with a, a an outside understanding that are like, if you can create more of a social deal here, we can make this more addictive. Mm-hmm. And I think like, mm-hmm. I mean, there's probably some really sharp psychologists and psychiatrists and people working on these games to help make this kind of feed into our, you know, you know, primal instinct, I guess you could say, and to make it addictive. No, I think that's right. I mean, I think there are what they call individual differences, right? Certain people are going to be more likely to get addicted to certain kinds of things than others. That's definitely true in the drug case and with alcohol and stuff. But you know, as you said, there are smart people that are working really hard to make these things as addictive as possible because their bottom line is the more people buy it, the more people play these things. Um, and that's true for video games. It's true for social media. Um, you know, it's, it's true for all this stuff. So, so it's a disturbing time out there. But, and, and, um, unfortunately, ahead. I actually have a two, meet, two o'clock meeting, so oh, I'm already waiting yeah. for a session. But, um, uh, I just super want- fun. I have yeah, I wanted to highlight your your online course. So I guess one of the most popular courses in Yale history is one of the taglines, but it's the science of well-being. And it, it talks about, I guess, rewirement and kind of ownership, and it's for the individual to kind of honestly take an introspective look at their life. If you have a, a line or two to give to our audience to tell them about it, we'd love to highlight it for you. 
Yeah. So um, one of the other things we're working on is how we can put all these things that we're learning about, learning about all our cognitive biases and stuff into practice so we can live a better life. And the Coursera class is really about that. It's called the science of well-being. And so it talks about some of the biases we have for what makes us happy. Um, in fact, one of the biases you'll see is we don't realize exercise is as important to our well-being as we think. So maybe that's a good thing to highlight for your readers. But it's all our cognitive biases um, as it relates to our well-being. Um, and it teaches you kind of ways that you can create better habits to kind of live a happier life. Killer. There you go. Dr. Lori Santos, thank you so much for taking the time. And Power Athlete Nation, thanks for listening again. Okay. But no, thank you. Thanks for your time. <laughs> yeah, thank thanks, Doc. Much. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. I'll talk to you soon. It was super fun. All right. Bye-bye. 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 Now it's time for you to empower your performance. The annual three-day Power Athlete Symposium is set for December 7th, 8th, and 9th in Austin, Texas. I recommend you do the following. Get your ass on Jack Street, order you a couple of big old boxes of meat from Stay Classy, and get your tickets to the symposium. As is tradition with any beginner template, the event is on a linear progression of epicness, and you do not want to miss the novice window. I think that may be too many metaphors to make sense, but until next time, bye!